In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We're grateful, Lord, that we have the voice and the strength to give thanksgiving to you. And this has been the season of thanksgiving. And even though we live in a country where the vast majority of people don't know the God to whom to give thanks, we're grateful that we do. And, Father, we, I trust that our thanksgiving is constantly genuine and that we recognize that in the giving of thanks, you change the way we think and you help us to recognize that uh, in every situation, no matter how difficult it may seem, that you are present working out your good and perfect plan. Lord, we ask you to minister to our hearts today. We recognize the fact that it is only by the Spirit of God that we can discern truth and apply it in our lives. And so we submit to his authority today. And Father, we ask that as the uh, services are going on this morning in the other room and as our pastor preaches, we ask that your presence and anointing will be there. And in the other Sunday school classes today, just glorify yourself and anoint each teacher according to your will. In Christ's name, amen. Today we're beginning the 33rd chapter of the book of Genesis, which you'll notice on your outline is entitled Encounter Between Jacob and Esau, and I have subtitled it High Noon on the King's Highway. <laughs> it doesn't really turn out, of course, as High Noon did, but uh, it turned out because God was there uh, to be a different uh, type of encounter. But it seemed that way, at least to Jacob, in many ways, uh, because here, were, here was his brother coming with 400 armed men, and he without the resources to, to deal with them, except, of course, God Almighty, who proved to be more than adequate, as he always does. Let's read the first four verses of chapter 33. Then Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. And he put the maids and their children in the front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. You can imagine how long this, this encounter had been in the back of Jacob's mind, knowing that he was going to have to face his brother after these 20 years and after all that he had done to, in effect, cheat his brother. Regardless of what kind of a character his brother was, Jacob was guilty. And uh, he knew that his brother wanted his head uh, when he laughed last saw him 20 years before. But we have to look at this in relationship to the events that just have transpired. Jacob has had a mighty encounter with the angel of the Lord. And after wrestling all night with the angel of the Lord and, and feeling that he had seen God face to face and being given a new name, when you put that up against an encounter with Esau, suddenly this encounter with Esau would be put in perspective and would seem rather tame and anticlimactic, actually, in comparison. 
because after all, Esau was but a man as opposed to the angel of God. But you'll notice that uh, in, in this situation, regardless of what was in his mind and regardless of what had just happened, Jacob is always the realist. Jacob always has a plan. <laughs> you know, plan A, plan B, plan C, whatever it takes uh, to get through the situation. And you'll notice that in this particular situation, he, he comes up with what we might call a just-in-case arrangement. God has promised to be with him. God has just met him. He's had this powerful encounter. But there is Esau on the horizon. He sees him coming, 400 camel-mounted men. Must have been a frightening thing in, in, in the flesh. And so what does he do? Well, he's going to go forth in the strength of the Lord, but just in case. <laughs> he, he arranges his family uh, in the order of expendability. Placing the maids first with their children. Leah second with her children and his beloved Rachel last with Joseph. Uh, you know, furthest back in the ranks as they would come to encounter Esau. But you'll notice Jacob does not bring up the rear. He doesn't hide behind his wives and his children. He could have if he'd have been a lesser man. But he went to the very front. It says he passed on ahead of them and he went to the front. He would be the first to encounter his brother Esau. He would make the initial contact with his brother. And so he acts as the clan leader, which he was. And he acts in a brave manner. And so God would bless him. You'll notice how he acts, though. As he approaches Esau, the scripture t tells us that he shiha seven times. Now, the word shaiha means to prostrate oneself as if in worship. And seven times he did this as he approached Esau. Now, I, I don't know if we can kind of picture this, but Jacob's coming forward and, and Esau is there. And I think uh, Esau uh, sees him coming and, and as Jacob bows down, Esau has his camel get down and he gets off his camel and he stands there and Jacob continues to come before and bows these seven times as he approaches his brother. Now other ancient sources besides the scripture are reported to teach that it was customary for a person in that day in that part of the world to bow seven times before the person who was the acknowledged ruler of the region. It was sort of the equivalent to the 21-gun salute, if you will, that the ships had to pay when they entered a, a port, a foreign port, where there was a high-ranking person in that port. And, and so he, it, was, it was acknowledged. I mean, it wasn't that he was worshiping Esau. This he was not doing. And, and it wasn't just uh, totally out of fear, but it was actually the custom for him to do what he did. It's very probable, though, that he put a little more gusto into his genuflection here because he wanted Esau to know that he was genuine in his subservience to him, in his uh, wanting to acknowledge Esau as the ruler of the region. And, I, you know, there was a measure of anxiety in it. And sometimes if you're anxious about something, you overdo something just to try to achieve the goal or to relieve your 
anxiety. And so I think he was really doing it flat out, you know. And uh, it was humiliating to him, certainly, especially in front of all of his family. But nevertheless, uh, he was showing what he felt was the proper respect and recognition for Esau because he acknowledged him as the ruler of the region, especially with 400 men behind him there, you know. It, it's obviously certain that someone who could muster a fighting force of 400 men could not be disconsidered a plain old, you know, clodhopper, some kind of a farmer who, who had no authority whatsoever. He's obviously a, uh, a major force in the region. And so Jacob was doing what he felt was right. Did this make any impact upon Esau? Well, it certainly did. Esau was already softened up by the gifts that had come his way, the five or so herds that he kept encountering one after the other. And, and he was told that these are for you from your servant Jacob. And he kept receiving these gifts and, and they, they literally softened him up, this profusion of gifts. And then, of course, seeing his brother seemingly genuinely bowing before him the seven times, giving him the honor of being ruler of the region. These factors combined with God. God used these factors, I think, to melt any hardness that was residual in the heart of Esau. God changed that man because he could have still had a great deal of animosity towards his brother. He had every reason to be angry. He had every reason to take revenge on his brother. This was his opportunity because Jacob was not running and he had 400 men with him and Jacob could not have defended all that he had against such a force. This was Esau's opportunity if he truly wanted revenge. Now whatever were Jacob's immediate motivations for what he did. Whatever were the excesses of his action, what he was basically doing was at least Christ-like in its outer appearance. Paul informs us in Philippians 2.3 that we are to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Now, if you really think about that passage, and if we could really make that passage work in our lives, we would rarely have conflict with other people because they would always have this sense that you considered them to be important. But, you know, it's our nature to want other people to think that we are important. And as a result, we act in, in ways that are self-elevating uh, and which, of course, others quickly usually see and recognize that uh, we've got an ego problem. But if we could live in this, this manner, you know, it's, what Paul is teaching and what Christ uh, gave us an example in his life was not a doormat approach, but was showing us the reality of how to develop good relationships with one another. Because the, the more you uh, think highly of another person, the more that person in response is going to think highly of you. 
Just think about it for, the, for a moment. The person that you talk to who seems to really pay attention to what you're saying and, and to be empathetic with what you're saying is a person you like to talk to, right? Whereas the other person who kind of has all the answers and when you're talking to them, you think their mind is 700 miles away. It's not much fun talking with such a person, is it? And sometimes that person's mind is 700 miles away because they're thinking, oh, I don't want to hear your problem. You know, I, I've got other things more important to think about than your problem. This, this of course, is not a Christ-like attitude. In, in Ephesians 5, Paul also says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be subject to one another. In other words, we shouldn't try to lord over one another, but we should try to literally understand those that are around us and, and to be concerned about the things that they are concerned about and, and put ourselves in a place of availability for them in helping to meet their needs. And then finally, in Colossians 3, Paul says, we are to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with each other and forgiving each other. Just like the world in which we live, right? Characteristic attitude of all Americans. Hmm. Just watch a little bit of television and what do we find? Exactly the opposite of all of these things. A heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We don't find much of it. It's, it's not our nature to be these ways. Uh, it's only as God changes us that we can be kind and gentle and patient and humble, which is what we really need to be if we're to be God's servant. When you and I live in obedience to this book, to, to the Word of God, we, we study it, we learn these truths, we look at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and all the way through the Old Testament, and all the way through the New Testament. We study these things. If, if they, all they do is cram this information in up here, it really isn't doing us any good. But when the truths filter down, and we make them a part of our lives, and we become obedient to the Word, and we endeavor to live as Christ would have us to live in this world, then He is the one who comes along, as He did in a situation, and breaks down the barriers, and he heals the wounds. Now, those barriers may not collapse overnight. Look how long the Berlin Wall stood, 30 years. Those wounds may not heal overnight, but the process will be begun. And, of course, if, if we always stand with this, this sense that, well, they need to start the healing, it's their fault, it won't happen. If Jacob had said, well, really, it was, I, it was Esau's fault because he was a total jerk. Uh, therefore, you know, he's going to have to come to me and I'm just going to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to submit to his authority. No. I, I don't think it was all fear on the part of Jacob. I don't, I don't think that Jacob did what he did and had the attitude that he had simply because he was afraid of Esau. I think that was a motivating factor, no doubt. But I think God had changed his heart. And that encounter with the angel by the river Jabbok, yes, Jabbok, had changed him. And I think he had some genuine feeling of love and concern for his brother. And forgiveness had already had its way in his heart. 
And that enabled him to be genuine with his brother and then enabled God to do what God wanted to do in the other person's heart. It's really hard for God to change the other person if we're not willing to change. God generally won't do it. What is the response? What does Esau do? He can no longer restrain himself. All these gifts have come. And now he sees his brother approaching in such a humble manner, granting to him the honor that was probably in Esau's mind beyond what was due to him. I don't think Esau viewed himself as regional ruler of all this area. And God worked in his heart, and he just could not restrain himself anymore. And he rushed over to, to uh, Jacob, and he grabbed him in his arms, and the two of them fell on each other's shoulders. The ice melted. The fear was gone. And they clung to each other, and they wept tears of forgiveness, of relief, of joy. It must have been a wonderful thing for these two men. Can you imagine the catharsis it was for their souls, their spirits, their emotions? And, uh, you know, I, I think that there were angels rejoicing. I mean, no matter what kind of a person Esau was, I don't think Esau really became what we would call a committed believer in Yahweh. But uh, in seeing what God was doing to heal a relationship and what God was doing in, in the heart of this man, Jacob, preparing Jacob to be the transmitter of the covenant, there was rejoicing, I think, in heaven. And these two strong men were not afraid to weep on each other's shoulders over 20 years of hostility. 20 years of a huge barrier existing between the two brothers. And so the pent-up emotions were just released in a great flood. And it changed these two men, and it changed the situation. Verse 5, And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he, that is Jacob, said, the children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. And Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother, let what you have be your own. And Jacob said, No, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please, take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has graciously dealt with me, and because I have plenty. And he urged him, and he took it. Well, 20 years of fear and hatred and guilt, although there was this great catharsis, uh, the, the, the uh, damage done, the walls built up, don't completely collapse all in one moment. But God was opening the door. The door was open for reconciliation between these two brothers, and the healing process was begun. I suppose that's something important for us to remember, and, and Christian psycholo psychologists will tell us this, that 
when there's, when there's been a big barrier between two people and there's finally a breakthrough, that barrier isn't really completely destroyed in one moment of reconciliation. It seems that it takes a long time of working at it to finally pull all those barriers down and to remove what had been built up over many years. And that's why we have to be patient with each other as we try to restore relationships and to allow the work of the Spirit to take its course. But as these two men wept, we don't know how long they wept on each other's shoulders and what all they expressed to one another at that time. It's not recorded for us here. But you can imagine that there, there was communication between the two as they stood there. I think they stood there for minutes uh, in, in that condition because, I mean, there was a lot of emotion to release. But finally, Esau looked up and certainly he had seen besides Jacob the, the rest of his family before, but now he officially acknowledges the women and the children who were standing off at a respectful distance. And he inquired about them. Who, who are these, my brother? Certainly he has some kind of an idea. I mean, there are several women. There are children there. I mean, obviously, they're probably Jacob's, but he's not been introduced. And so he, he inquires. Now, think about this for a moment. Put, try, if, if you can, to put yourself in the sandals of, of the maids, of Leah, of Rachel, of particularly of the older children who understood what was going on here. Uh, the anxiety that Jacob had felt certainly was transmitted to them. They were certainly fearful too. They, they knew nothing about Esau except what Jacob had said. They had never met Esau. But they knew that Jacob was fearful of his brother. And, and they knew that Jacob had, uh, done not, had not done right by, by his brother. And therefore, they, they were filled with anxiety too. And the very fact that they were put in kind of a formation as they approached uh, indicated that this fear was, was general. And I can just believe that there was great relief as they saw the two brothers fall on each other's shoulders and weep uh, there. And, and, you know, in, in that society... Uh, at least in that society today, and, and probably this is true in the past, they're not real quiet about the expression of their emotions. You know, they would wail out loud. And it's very common even for men to, to do that. And so certainly this, this brought a, a relief to them as they witnessed this, this wonderful embrace of these two long-separated brothers. And then when finally Jacob beckoned that they come, I think they came with respect, certainly, because we're, we're told that each of them bowed as they came up to Esau, and I think they probably bowed much as Jacob had. And they bowed down as they approached this, this man, imitating their husband and father in this situation. But I think there was a muted jubilation there, too, a relief, a joy. Uh, maybe things are going to be okay and we have nothing to fear from these mounted men because God has removed the animosity between the two brothers. As 
Jacob introduced his family. They came and they bowed finally that final time. And he introduced his two maids. And he introduced the children of his two maids. And then he introduced Leah and, and her children. And then finally his beloved Rachel. It's interesting that he introduced them in the order of increasing dearness to him. But of course that was the order in which he had arrayed them with the dearest at the back. And so the maids were the first to come and, and he introduced them in that particular order. And he didn't have to. He could have you know, divided them and, and beckoned Rachel and, and Joseph to come first. But he did not do that. Uh, he just introduced them in the order in which they had approached Esau. I think it's not of minor importance here that in the conversation that has gone on between Jacob and Esau, that Jacob made it a point to acknowledge God in all of this. I think in this, Jacob is a great example to us all. This is one of the first things he did. Let's look back again at verse 5. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children. This is Esau did. And he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Now, he didn't have to say that at that moment. He could have said, These are my kids and my wives. He didn't have to say, Whom God has given to me. But he has chosen to do that. Because in the 20 years and in the, the, the constant reminders of God, he has come to the place where he has recognized that to God he owes everything. Now, he is not always going to be faithful in that remembrance or in that expression, just as you and I sometimes are tempted to maybe not give God his due in a given situation or at a given moment. But I think to Jacob it was important to invoke the name of Elohim for at least two reasons. One, I think, was, as I have expressed, to genuinely acknowledge that God was responsible for these good gifts, his children. Now, in that society, in those days, the children were considered to be wonderful gifts. Our society, some people consider them to be a great pain. But the scripture clearly teaches that children are a gift from God. And that should be something that we always remind ourselves of. But I think in addition to granting God the honor and the uh, praise that was due his name, the acknowledgement that was correct, I think he is wanting Esau to be well aware of the fact that Esau is dealing with God's man. And see, that will make a difference. Because if Esau recognizes that Jacob is God's man, then maybe Esau will be a little more careful in his attitude and will be quickly reminded of the fact that he may have 400 men, but Jacob has God. And uh, the odds wouldn't be very fair if there were a real collision here. Not that Esau would understand all of that at this time because there's no evidence that, that Esau was a man who walked with God, but he had witnessed the power of God. He had seen it in his father Isaac, and he had seen it in his grandfather Abraham, and it had been told to him down through the years as he sat around the family fire and heard the stories of what God had done. 
And so hopefully this would at least rekindle in Esau's mind the reality of who God really is and of his great power. Well, after all the introductions had taken place and, and Esau was made aware of, of the maids and, and of Leah and Rachel and, and the 12 children, actually, that were there at that particular time, he then said, by the way, Jacob, what was meant by all those flocks I encountered? That's really what he's saying there in, uh, in verse 8. He said, and he said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? He's not referring to the family because he, obviously he knew what that was all about. But you can tell by uh, going on in verse 9 when, when uh, Jacob says to find favor in your sight. But I have plenty. Well, obviously he's referring to the gifts that were sent to him. Uh, these herds, this 580 animals <laughs> that have been presented to him. Uh, what, 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 what does all this mean? I mean, certainly he had heard the words, but he wanted to hear from Jacob, what, what's this all about, brother? And notice that Jacob doesn't hem and haw around. He openly states the purpose. They were sent so that Esau would recognize the genuineness of Jacob's desire to show Esau proper respect and to restore their relationship. I sent them as gifts so that it might be well between the two of us. Well, that's really being honest because that was the reason. And, uh, you know, and God had honored that and God had used that. Well, what happens next is is I, I think a genuine expression of, of Esau and Jacob in their hearts, but it also is the custom of the land. It was the proper way for both of them to respond in this particular situation. Esau protested that he had plenty and that he needed no more. Now, that was what he was supposed to do. That was his role. He, doesn't just, he wasn't supposed to just say, oh, well, thanks a lot. I really needed those. That, that's not how you do it. In, in that society in that day. You, you reject the present, at least it seems like you are. You're, you're saying, no, I don't really need them, you keep them. And then it was also proper custom uh, for Jacob to insist that Esau keep the gifts. Now, es Jacob wasn't supposed to say, oh, you don't want them? Okay, then I'll take them back. No. That was not the proper custom for him. His response was to be as it, exactly as it was. No, they're yours. Please take them. Now, it, it sounds like it happens just, you know, like that, and, and that may be it. Or it could have taken place a few more times. Oh, no, I don't need him. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, no, I don't. You know, we don't know how often it happened, but at least this is the, the, the basic presentation here. But according to protocol, it was incumbent upon Esau to ultimately accept the gifts. He could not ultimately reject them, except if by rejecting them, he was saying that I do not accept you and I do not want a relationship with you. In other words, if he was truly hostile to Jacob, then he could reject the gifts ultimately. But if, if there was to be this friendship and, and if the two were accepting each other as appeared to happen, then it was incumbent upon him to ultimately accept the gifts. Because to do otherwise 
would be the sign that past wrongs are not forgiven. Now, we often see this even in our own day. If a rift exists between ourselves and another person or between this person and that person, and, and we want to see that rift healed, we may proffer a gift of some sort. It doesn't have to be a thing. Certainly, it's probably not hurt animals. But uh, we may give them a gift of, of, of kind words. We may give them a gift of our time or, or literally a physical gift of some sort. We may do that. And the refusal or the acceptance of that gift tells us whether the other person is open to reconciliation. If that person rejects the gift, you know there's still a wall there and, and, and there's no way we're going to get this worked out yet. But if the person accepts the gift, then we recognize that if we do this right, we, we can bring about reconciliation, or God, hopefully, will bring about reconciliation. Jacob makes this clear when he said, if I have found favor in your sight, then please take the present from my hand. If we are reconciled, if you are willing to accept me and, and, and forget the past, please accept the gift. And when Esau ultimately did so, he was saying to Jacob, the past is behind us. I accept you as my brother. Reconciliation can proceed. Then Jacob makes a very interesting statement here. And I think he is very honest in this statement, even though we might think it to be an overstatement. He says in the second half of verse 10, For I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Now remember, Jacob just came from Penuel, or Penuel, which means the face of God. He had just wrestled all night with the angel of the Lord. And by his own testimony, he felt that he had wrestled with God. And so when he says this of his brother, I see your face as, I, as if it were the smiling face of God. I think he's genuine here in what he's saying. Because to see Esau smile after all the years of fear and hatred and, and uh, animosity built, to see Esau smile at him was as if God were smiling at him to, to Jacob. It certainly was. And he felt that the gift he was given was an appropriate gift of thanksgiving to Esau for his smile and to God ultimately for his smile upon Jacob in bringing about this reconciliation with his brother. In verse 11, Jacob urged Esau to accept the gift. Please take my gift. When he uses that word, their gift, he's using a different word from the word used back in verse 10. He says in verse 10, no, no, please, if now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from your hand. In verse 10, the word literally means gift or present, just like you would use it, I would use it, a Christmas gift or a birthday gift or something, a physical gift of some sort. But in verse 11, he's using a different word. 
He's using a word that's derived from the Hebrew barak, which means to bless. And what he is saying here is, please take my blessing from me. Not take it away from me, but take this, uh, this portion of blessing that I've received from God. Take this portion of blessing which has been brought to you. Now remember what their original quarrel was largely over. The quarrel was over the fact that Jacob had stolen, in Esau's mind, Esau's blessing. And Esau was, was in total distress over the fact that his blessing had been lost. Now, he didn't stop to think about the fact that he had sold it and, and that he had despised it. But all he could think of was the blessing was lost. And I think Jacob, over the years, became convicted over the way by which he obtained the blessing. Yes, God had promised it, but that wasn't the way it was supposed to be acquired. And so Jacob is now coming to his brother, wanting to share that blessing with his brother. Please take these animals from me because they are symbolic of the blessing God has made upon me. After all, look at these herds. They cover the hillsides. And the family that I have. Please take this as a small token of God's blessing upon me and my desire to share that blessing with you. He was in a small way trying to undo the original wrong he had done to his brother. Now back in verse 9, where we had read that Esau refused the gift on the grounds that he had plenty, when he said that, when he said, I have plenty, he's using the word rob, which means much. I, I have much. However, in verse 11, where Jacob makes a, a, a similar statement. He says, I have plenty. You know, take it from me because I have plenty. Jacob uses a different word there. Again, Jacob uses the word call, K-O-L, which meant I am all, complete, I'm whole. I have all, I am complete, I am whole. So Esau is saying, I don't need these gifts from you because I have a lot. I, I have much. I have many animals already, and what do a few more mean? What he's talking about is kind of an open system here where you can keep dumping it in from the top. And, and so it's a, it's a finite uh, system in the sense that you, you can keep adding more stuff to it, but it's never complete. You're never filled up to fullness. But... Jacob here is speaking differently about this. He's not just talking about this world's goods. And it's very probable Esau had a lot more than Jacob had. I mean, after all, he was, in effect, a, a ruler of, of Mount Seir and, and that whole region. And he probably had, I mean, we already know he had multiple wives and he had lots of children. We'll read, uh, see, does that come in? Yeah, that comes a few chapters down the line here. I forget which chapter now. But we'll, we'll go through all of the children of Esau. And he has a dozen boys too, just as uh, Jacob had. But uh, Jacob, on the other hand here, is talking about a, an absolute sufficiency. And, and that has nothing to do with, that, with numbers of animals. You know, a sufficiency is not X number of animals or Y number of 
of you know amount of gold or something else. A sufficiency that he is talking about here is a, is a completeness that comes because one has a knowledge of God and understands his standing before God. This knowledge was gained through the 20 years he spent there in paid Aram. Now remember, the, 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 to me this is really kind of a marvelous thing when you think about it. Remember that as Jacob was on his way, he says, I crossed the Jordan with only my staff. But before he crossed the Jordan, he met God at a place called Bethel, the house of God. And he spent the 20 years over there in Paden Aram, and he acquired all of his family and all his animals. And then as he comes back to the land, just before he re-enters the land, before he crosses back over the Jordan, he meets God at Penuel, the face of God. And so you have these 20 years of experience bracketed by these marvelous encounters with God. Face-to-face -face encounters with God on the two sides of that 20-year period. And in that process, Jacob came to recognize that his sufficiency was not in how many camels or donkeys or sheep or goats he had, but was in his relationship to God. That was his sufficiency. And, and however many animals he gave to Esau was, was immaterial because he still had a sufficiency. Now, for you and me, who are born of the Spirit of God and are seeking to walk faithfully with Him, we too are complete, and we too lack nothing in the sense that Jacob is talking about here. This completeness comes because of our knowledge of Him, who He is, which we gain through the Scripture, and because of our standing before Him in his sight. Now the impact of the world is, you know, the world comes at us, the flesh rises up, the devil comes at us. That impact is such that we sometimes to fail, we, we fail to see that completeness as a reality. We feel incomplete in some way. We, we fail to recognize what God is saying to us here in his word. We need to refresh our understanding, and so I have a, a few New Testament passages there I'd like to just turn to briefly. Uh, there on the outline. A couple of passages in Colossians to begin with. There are some teachings afield today that whereby we're, we're told that to become born again by the Spirit of God and to walk in His way and to know His Word is not sufficient. You've got to have some other kind of uh, uh, ethereal experience of some sort. But in Colossians 1.28, Paul says, And we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. The word also means perfect. Perfect not in the sense that we can do no wrong, but perfect in the sense of being complete. In him we have completeness. We have wholeness. Nothing is lacking. In the second chapter of Colossians, verses 9 and 10, For in him all the fullness 
of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. I mean, you think about that comparison there. In Christ, all of the fullness of God dwelt in the flesh. And then it says, and in him, you have been made complete. By Christ indwelling us, the completeness of God indwells us. And if the completeness of God indwells us, we are complete. The, the spirit has been brought to life. That which was dead has been made alive. And we are physically alive, but we are spiritually alive. And, and the two together provide completeness as it did in Christ, who was in every way a man, and yet he was the fullness of God at the same time. A mystery which they've been working on for 2,000 years, and the theologians have not yet agreed on the absolute way to describe that, because I think in human terms it's impossible to talk about or to describe. And it's brought about historically the split of churches. You know, I mean, the, the church divided over whether the Spirit of God proceeded from the Son or from the Father or from both of them, and, you know, all these arguments. There was a major division in the church uh, 1,500 years ago over whether Christ was mostly man with a little bit of God or mostly God with a little bit of man or if he was half and half or what he was. You know, they couldn't figure it out. But the Scripture teaches us that he was every bit a human being as we are, and yet he, the fullness of the Godhead had dwelt in him in bodily form. That being true, and, and his indwelling us, then we have that completeness within us. There's nothing lacking within us. And then James talks about how this, um, this position works itself out. We positionally are complete, but how do we get that positional completeness into everyday reality in our lives? And James says in chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Oh, happy day, another trial. <laughs> Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The more trials we face the stronger we become because the more we lean on his completeness. The more we recognize that in us there are not the answers to all the questions. There's not the strength to deal with all the crises. We've got to depend on his completeness, his wholeness, which indwells us. And we can commit everything to him and he will take care of it, ultimately. But it does require our acknowledging of that completeness being there within us, of his authority and obedience to his word. We can't live in disobedience and expect God to do all the, clean up all the problems over here. We've got to walk hand in hand and in accord with his spirit. So positionally, we are complete in him as a result of being born again by the spirit of God who indwells us, and by submitting to the sovereignty of Christ. I really have a problem with those who, who say, well, I've been born again, but Christ is not the Lord of my life. You know, I, I have a theological problem with that. 
And because if he's not Lord, then he certainly can't be your Savior because he didn't come to this earth to be Savior uh, without being Lord because the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him and he died as God on the cross. You know, there, there's a docetic belief around. Don't hear about it too much today, but in the early church, and, and the script, you know, Paul, not Paul, yeah, Paul to some extent, but John especially, uh, tried to deal with this. And, and that was the idea that, that after Christ was born and when he was baptized, uh, God came upon him and, and he was God for three years. And then when he hung on the cross, God left him. So he died a human being. No, God can't die, you know. And so God left him. And so this, this idea that Christ was sort of a phantom, and uh, that uh, he was only God for the three years between baptism and before his death. You know, a, try, a way to try to explain how in the world you can get di God to die on the cross. Well, you can't explain that. So we have to recognize here that Christ is sovereign. And, and if we're going to be saved by him, we have to acknowledge his sovereignty in order for that salvation to really take place in our hearts. And so, as we acknowledge our positional stand in Christ and the completeness, the outworking of that completeness, unfortunately, comes through tribulation primarily. We, none of us are particularly thrilled about tribulation, I'm sure. But unfortunately, that's usually the only way we really recognize our dependence and we finally acknowledge that our sufficiency is not sufficient for the needs of this life. And of course, we're criticized as Christians for that. It all goes back, doesn't all go back to, but Lenin, you know, made it so poignant when he said, you know, that he doesn't want the church or, or Christianity because it's a crutch. You know, it's a crutch you have to lean on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah amen. <laughs> Anybody who thinks he's man or woman enough to, to stand without that crutch is a fool, as we're told in Psalms. Let me end with these two passages in First and Second Peter. Who These two passages kind of focus in on this completeness and then the outworking of that completeness. First Peter 6. First Peter 1, 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, which unfortunately it is, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly re rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. He's not, of course, talking about salvation by works here. But he's simply saying when we, when we acknowledge that completeness and then God works it out in our lives, that total package produces the salvation of our souls, our salvation here and now, in that we're able to survive and, and praise God in the midst of it, and then the ultimate salvation that comes when Christ returns. And then in the first chapter of 2 Peter, 
Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God and, of our God and Savior, comma, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now notice the statement of position in this next verse. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And then the outworking is explained. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might be partakers, become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence or virtue. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And to your knowledge, self-control. And to your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, Godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into etern the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. If we don't see these things developing in our lives, if the outworking of our position of completeness and wholeness in him is not happening, he says, you better go back and check, check the original commitment and see if you have truly been called and you truly are in him in the first place. Because if you're positionally in him, then the outworking should be coming as the trials and persecutions come along our way. We're, we're to be developing all these things that we read, moral excellence and knowledge and kindness and all the way down the line. This is supposed to be worked out. Now, it's not going to be worked out to perfection. None of us is going to stand here as a, as a, you know, as a knight in shining armor with, with big words going, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, you know, humility, humility, faith, uh, all this kind of thing. But you and I do see this in one another as God works in our lives and God changes us. And hopefully as a, as a, as a body of believers together, we, be, we become a witness by the power of what God has done to change our lives. And that, I think, is the strength of the church. Not a program necessarily of, of hanging a sign out saying revival from July 1st to July 14th or, or, or great uh, evangelistic programs. That's not the heart, the core. That's just kind of the peripheral that helps to bring about what's going to happen. But if the church has real power there, it's because these people who make up this body of believers are, are described here in, in these passages in, in Peter. And, and they are people who demonstrate the reality of their position in Christ. Next week we'll look at uh, 
verse 12 through 17 to begin with and uh, see why Jacob declines a generous offer from Esau. 